everybody, this is Joe Lynn Turner, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Keep it rock and keep it locked. Hey, Metalheads, uh, we are back, and uh, this week we kick off the launch of our 2017 project. And uh, as we talked a few weeks ago, we talked about trying to not build up a whole bunch of audio, but to try to get things out as uh, as they came. So that's what we're doing this week, and yep. uh, I'll, let, uh, I'll let Richie divulge what the, uh, the theme is this year. Well, we did one on Strange Highways, so that's an album. And then we did one on the studio, Little Mountain. So I figured I'd go off in a different direction and uh, do a project on Kerrang! magazine, in particular the 80s Kerrang! Yeah. Uh, when it became the behemoth in the metal scene right? Uh, that it became. And um, I got into Kerrang! around 86, 87, uh, didn't know much about a lot of the bands in it, of course. And that w- they were really the only publication that covered any of these bands. Yeah. Um, a lot of the music I listen to now is because of the Kerrang guys. Mm-hmm. Because over time, you got a relationship with the writers that if they liked a certain particular, a particular band or a particular genre of music, yeah. and you liked it, you their recommendations would, you know, rub right. off on you. Right. And um, it had great writing. It was funny. Um, it was every. It started off bi-weekly and then it became weekly. So like every. Thursday or Friday you go down and you get your Kerrang and read the reviews they had live reviews they had great interviews they were going all over the world interviewing all these bands and nobody else was covering a lot any of them really yeah um, I don't know about here in the US but you had Metal Hammer at the time but Metal Hammer was a German uh, magazine and it was being translated from German into English it had a lot of spelling mistakes <laughs> uh, the print quality wasn't great yeah um, and I just felt that, you know, the Kerrang! was very well put together. Funny, you know, a little bit irreverent and not yeah. afraid to put the boot in when it was warranted. Um, they didn't give everything 5Ks if they thought an album was crap. Right. They said it was crap. Um, and just over time, you got to, you know, know all the writers in it. And it was, it was your only way, really, of finding out what was going on in the metal scene. Yeah. But I think that's part of the interesting thing, too, right, is what you just mentioned, is, is knowing all the writers and... You know, I think part of the appeal of when you suggested doing this project this year was the fact that pretty much all those guys, if they're still around, they're still all well regarded. Whenever there's metal documentaries, they just they pop up like, mm-hmm. on every single one of them. I, you know, I mean, this week's guest, I mean, you, you go pull any major metal documentary or even not major ones that are out there and they have him on every single one of them. And he's always spot on. He knows his stuff. And said his his opinion and stuff is still as as respected as it was back then and i think it says a lot about the people that were there doing that yeah well a lot of them are still in the business mick wall still writes yeah um he's probably one of the, the, the big big names that came out of kerrang um derek oliver's rock candy records mm. um he's still in the business malcolm's still in the business a lot of the guys went from kerrang maybe to raw metal mm-hmm. hammer classic rock a yeah. lot of them went from ended up in Classic Rock magazine um, over the years. I know Mick Wall was one of the people that founded it. Yeah. And Malcolm worked for Classic Rock for years. So in a way, I've 
grown up with all these writers. All right. these writers have, were writing for Kerrang! And then when I bought Classic Rock, they were all writing for Classic Rock. And, you know, they, they, they never really changed the way they did the interviews and the reviews and everything. And, and you know, it's I've, I just wanted to spend a little bit of time uh, talking about, you know, the people that worked in Kerrang! Because a lot of people, you mentioned Kerrang! to them and it was the Bible of metal. Uh-huh. You know, but just Why? Yeah. You know, there must be a story in the background why this magazine went from a one-off from Sounds mm-hmm. to being one of the biggest selling magazines in, in England in yeah. the 80s. But I, I mean, and I, you know, I'm sh- hopefully we'll be able to untangle this as we get people on and stuff. But I mean, you're sitting back now and looking at it. I think part of it is it's, it came at the same time as, as New Album. Yeah. You know, which quickly became an, an international phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So you kind of link those two together, and it's it's almost a, like a perfect storm for them. And the fact that that by and large, nobody else picked up on those bands, you know. So if you look at some of the other you know, mainstream magazines over here, that you know, like even you know Malcolm mentions, like you know Cream and Hip Parader, and you know some of those magazines would occasionally have an album review or something, and they might say a little bit about the band. So you know that's. You know, the first time I heard about Saxon was just some little album review that they just were kind of tossing off. But um, it just didn't really have that same coverage on anything here as it did over there. Tell me about Rolling Stone in the 80s in the U.S. Oh, same as it is now. Crap. What about, was Metal Edge out then? No. Metal no. Edge is 90s, is it? Yeah. What was after? But, but yeah, Rolling Stone has always just been more, I read something today. I can't remember who who wrote it. Oh, it was Chrissy Hind, and she you know, was talking about it. That it's you know it's always just been a fashion magazine, really. What about Rip? That's oh, that's much later. Oh, is it? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, that's much later. Yeah, Lawn Friend and all that stuff. That that's definitely, um, yeah, more late, more late, like late eighties maybe. Um, but yeah, that that's that was further down too. But that and that was really, um, kind of more that you know that the that L.A. metal scene that really what fueled rip you know the the poison and the warrants and you know all that stuff is is where it fueled that magazine but as much as more of a you know kind of a fan driven you know mania that you had for Nawab. yeah you know? see i never bought an episode or an episode an, an issue of uh rolling stone or any i didn't even know these magazines i knew they existed yeah i just never saw them yeah. kerrang was enough for me and then maybe if metal hammer was there and they covered a band that maybe kerrang hadn't yeah. on, on on that week, I'd get that. Yeah. But as for American magazines, I never actively saw yeah. them. I mean, if you if you were to them. you know take and find out you know a particular you know band and uh, go look at well, if it got reviewed in Rolling Stone, you know a metal band, chances are that they would have just just torn it apart, hmm. just called it shit. Just that's it. You know, Bob Dylan. Oh, it's wonderful. Almost a guarantee. You know what I mean. Uh, you know, Megadeth, all the worst tripe on earth. I mean, that's just, that's just, the, you know, you know, and it kind of, it's, you know, it's interesting you talk about the fact that, that, uh, you know, writers, you know, Malcolm talks about writers trying to stay a little bit removed and all of that, but it just almost seemed like a magazine like Rolling Stone, they were expected to, to, to like certain stuff and dislike certain stuff. And that the writers, even though they had some well-respected writers seemed to always just go with that bent and they never really seemed to have a good balance. And they still don't. Yeah, I think in the U.S. as well, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but you had guys like Bob Nalbandian, and they were doing their fanzines. Uh-huh. And next thing, there was this professionally done magazine from England yeah. called Kerrang! And they must have looked at that and 
that that was like wow that's the blueprint for what we want to do for metal because it was the quality was good on it the writing was good and you had the likes of Bob um and the other guys uh I can't think of any of their names you can probably tell me um they were come they were scratching away trying to get their own you know uh-huh. photo using photocopiers yeah. and everything to, now they did did as good a job as they could but with a magazine like that comes over here uh it must have been a great for them for something to you know look at yeah and, but i mean even then you know i don't really remember ever seeing like kerrang being readily available here either okay was Just, it like tape trading <laughs> yeah or you know yeah. like you know some some uh you know going to like a newsstand store that maybe has a huger selection of magazines but if you were to go to your your average you know most people used to buy their you know magazines at like the supermarket or the drugstore or whatever else you, you just wouldn't see that you just we wouldn't see Krang at all well you probably think that you know a store over here a general you know supermarket they wouldn't buy a specialist heavy metal magazine and put it on the shelf unless someone actually went in and asked them to order it from yeah but even, you know, even, uh, I don't know if I haven't been in a Barnes & Noble for an ages, but, you know, when you'd go to, like, their magazine section, even then, something like Kerrang! would always be, like, way the hell up on the the shelf, too. Like, the Rolling Stone was always, is always like, right down where you can get it. And the Kerrang! was probably two months old. Yeah. <laughs> Which is another problem. Um, but they just, yeah, even, even then, it seems like it just always kind of pushed off. Yeah, yeah. I but Kerrang for me was definitely the Bible growing up. There was there's no two ways about it. It had a lot of power. Um you know, and other if that magazine hadn't have existed, I probably wouldn't be into metal. Yeah. In all honesty. I probably probably would have been a fad. <laughs> I probably would have liked three or four bands. Yeah. And uh they didn't because that opened my eyes to a lot of different genres of music. And, you know, we've got Malcolm Dome here and he said he covered anyone from Rat to Slayer. Mm-hmm. And that's, I listen from Rat to Slayer. Right. Partly because of what Kerrang told me to, yeah. you know, to maybe listen to. Right. And boy, and I did. And I went, I like that. And I didn't like everything now. Um, I'd, There's a lot of bands they had in it. I, you know, I'd listen to them and I wouldn't like them. But that was, that was the great thing about the magazine. They were willing to put bands on the cover that, Running really new, mm-hmm. which was unheard of at the time. Sure, they had Dan Reed Network on the cover, they had Kings X on the cover, they had Bon Jovi on the cover before they blew up. Like no commercial magazine at the time would do that. Like if you had a magazine, a rock magazine, it'll be you have to put Pink Floyd on the cover, or Led exactly. Zeppelin on the cover, or it has to be a name that'll that because the first thing you look at is the cover of the magazine, right. and if you're putting a nobody on the cover. Nobody's going to buy it, but the Kerrang guys went, no, we believe in this band. We think they should be big, Yeah, and here you go. Here's- well, it's kind of an interesting thing, too, with that is that, so one, you're right, they would put anything on the cover, and you would never get that on a mainstream magazine, ever. Um, but the other thing was is that their covers were just kind of crazy. I mean, they had all kinds of text on their cover all the time. They still do. Oh, the one thing that used to drive me mad, they had uh, whatever, whatever, colors they used they'd have like red writing with a yellow background and it'd be like oh, you can't you know you couldn't read thing without getting a splitting headache and that used to drive me insane <laughs> <laughs> but they uh yeah they just seem to have their own style and and stuff and it was different and it, and it did grab you but uh yeah very different than anything here in the u.s at all yeah it's interesting now but uh, you I know the magazines probably exist now, so maybe they're online. I'd love to actually read some of the 80s magazines from the US and compare them and see, are they any way the same? Mm-hmm. Because I, 
I'd probably think that the U.S. magazines were a little bit more serious. Yeah, well, I mean, I let you borrow that that uh, that book on cream. I read that, yeah, all right. There and was- that's and that's probably the closest to Kerrang, where you have some of that irreverence in there and stuff. And so you, that kind of gives you a good idea of uh, you know from uh, issue to issue. That's what they were like, and a lot of those people are still out there, you know, writing now too, and they're kind of more the respected end of the American journalism scene. Yeah. And, and again, that came from, uh, from a scene, you know, it came from the Detroit scene, which was kind of, uh, has always been more of a bastion of, of rock and metal and they fell into that and that's what they covered. Mm -hmm. Yeah. True. Uh, Like that, that, that book you gave me was good, but there's a definite difference between the way Kerrang covered Mm -hmm. it. I think the Kerrang guys probably covered it, uh, thinking they were going to be out of a job in a few weeks in the Probably. beginning. Yeah. And it was like, screw it. We'll just, you know, here's my honest opinion. Yeah. I'm not going to be politically correct here. I'm going to say if this band is good, it's good. If it's shit, it's shit. And well, I, I think too that, you know, and I, I think Malcolm kind of alludes to it a little bit, is um, that all, all the guys on the staff, they, I mean, they, ultimately they were, they were fans. I think they knew what they were going to want to read, how they would, you know, what, what kind of a style they would want to read. And so I think it was written with that same kind of a, of a manic metal fan style. Yeah. So I think that may be a part of its ingredient of its success too. If that had been more of a, you know, new musical express style, it probably wouldn't have been as successful. Yeah. It's interesting. Like you, you say that because Kerrang! when it came out, it must've been uh, a bit of a loose cannon for the record companies mm. because yeah. A lot of the bigger magazines would have been in bed with the labels. Sure. Um, yeah. Here's this band coming out. You're gonna. We know you're going to give them a favorable review. Yeah. We'll. You know. We'll give you access. And then you've all these Kerrang guys. Yeah. Who are fans and they're coming in and they're they're like, hang on a second. Who are you? Oh, we're Kerrang magazine. And then uh, they'd get it. You know, they give them a review and it wouldn't be as favorable. But yet they kind of felt that they had to get Kerrang on board anyway because they were so such a big magazine anyway that they, were, they had no choice yeah, yeah. but they didn't have the same control over Krang as maybe they would on the other magazines mm-hmm. do, you, do you get what I'm saying yeah there? oh yeah absolutely yeah yeah, yeah so I, I think that's definitely true yeah I think there was a lot of that there and uh, but of course I stopped buying Krang in early 90s uh-huh. um, of course Malcolm was gone well gone by then and uh, I think when grunge blew blew up um, they started trying to you know, jump the ship and on all the all the bands that made the, the magazine great in the first place. Yeah. A lot of the writers had left, and um, then they started covering some of the Britpop stuff. Yeah, I was like, I'm out of here. Like, <laughs> I'm gone. And um, and then Classic Rock, I think, came out in the mid '90s, and that had a lot of the same writers on it. So I jumped on board that. But I haven't bought Kerrang at least twenty years. Wow, I'll be honest, I've no interest in it yeah. anymore. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't even know who's working for it now, to be honest. Yeah, and, and I mean, you just even look at at uh, you know the the different bands that have been on the the Kerrang tours each year and stuff, and it's kind of like, yeah, no. But I mean, now they're doing kind of more of the the metal core and things like that too, which is kind of not the thing we're into. Yeah, um, yeah, they probably they're probably more wide ranging now, Kerrang, than they used to be a lot of younger bands maybe they cover they probably still cover the Maidens and, and, and all that but they used to cover I used to look at the cover I'd go in and I'd pick up Classic Rock yeah. and Kerrang would be next to it would be like nah yeah. I mean it's interesting though bands? you know where it's at now if you think about it because I mean they really are kind of slanting that magazine now to a, a, a much 
younger audience. They have to, though. You know what I mean? Like, but it's weird because you've you got to figure that, well, at least here in the U.S., I mean, you know, teens and 20-somethings, they're not buying magazines. They go online. Mm. I mean, who buys magazines now? It's old farts like us. True. And so it's interesting that there's still a going concern, but they've really, you know, so I don't know. Do they still have that cachet that is a strong enough draw that it still it still sells? It's kind of interesting to think about. Yeah. You see, I used to, when I bought Kerrang years ago, I used to read it cover to cover. Uh-huh. If I bought Kerrang now, I'd probably read three articles in it, two reviews, yeah. and then just throw it in the bin. Uh-huh. I wouldn't even be interested in any of the rest of it. Yeah. Um, that's just me, but, you know, I should have kept them all years ago. <laughs> Fuck. They, they make a pretty penny online, actually, if you, well, have, I wouldn't a, be surprised. If you have a collection of Kerrangs from the 80s. Yeah. Um, sure, especially if you have that Doro issue. <laughs> <laughs> I should have asked her that when we did the interview, but, um, yeah, it's, you know, happy days going back for me over this, you know. Yeah. And as you find when we're talking to Malcolm, He'll bring up something and that'll point me and oh I'll ask him about this yeah. or ask him. I think that's probably going to happen a lot. Um, as we do this, is they'll bring up stuff that'll pique my brain again because a lot of this stuff I've forgotten about. Yeah. And um, so this should be an interesting project. Now we have someone else lined up, and you know hopefully now in the next couple of weeks we'll get one or two more on. But you know this should be an interesting project. I don't mm-hmm. think anyone's really done again anything yeah. like this. Yep. Yeah. Um. A lot of it is probably going to be new to a lot of people, especially younger people who are, who've probably heard of Kerrang! being this huge magazine in the 80s. Um, but yeah, this is going to be fun. Hmm. I'm looking, really looking forward to this one. Yeah, so uh, definitely uh, it's good to be back after the break. And uh, it's good to just kick off this project right on time. And uh, I know initially it was going to be the first episode of the year, but we kind of slid in the uh, the kicks one there. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so I think... Uh, Try to keep on top of it this year and, and not have, uh, how many months was it? 27. 27. We'll, <laughs> we'll do one or two and then we'll run them and then we'll do one or two more and then run them. Yeah. So uh, so we're on schedule right now for this one. And uh, so I hope you guys enjoy it. And we're going to uh, kick over to our conversation with the uh, the one, the only, Mr. Malcolm Dome. Hello. Malcolm? Yes. Hi, it's uh, Richie from Focus on Metal. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Thank you, Richie. How are you? I'm great. Before we get into Kerrang, Malcolm, mm. um, Team Rock. Um, bit <laughs> yes. of, were you an employee of Team Rock or were you a contributor? I was, but I wasn't. Uh, I was for a while, but I left Team Rock uh, in 2015 because I wanted to do more freelance stuff. Uh, and uh, so I've effectively been freelance working for them since, so not full-time employed. Yeah, it was... Uh, which is probably uh, lucky considering what's happened. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I was a subscriber for Classic Rock for many years and uh, I was shocked I'm sure not as shocked as you guys were, but uh, it's a bit of a blow to the magazine industry because... Well, it, it is, but the only good thing is I know there are companies out there who are keen to buy the magazines, and I would expect an announcement, maybe even this week, as to who will actually be buying them. I, I'd be amazed if they don't get bought. So I, I think there's considerable hope for the future of the magazines. Yeah, I hope so, because I always found that the quality of the magazine, the actual physical quality was great. The writing was great. Um, and there wasn't anything really like it out there because a lot of the magazines are gone now. Yes, you're right. They have. It's uh, the way of the, the modern world that people want to be online and being online expect it for nothing. 
Uh, and uh, you're right, a lot of magazines have gone. But I, uh, I have no doubts that classic rock, prog, and metal hammer will all be bought by companies or bought as a job lot by a company. Mm-hmm. I know there have been offers for them, so things will actually look up, and hopefully the staff will be back. So just a quick editorial comment here, because, of course, if you're listening to this right now, you're thinking, hey, wait a minute, this is kind of old news. And yes, you are correct. Soon after we talked to Malcolm on uh, January 9th, the future came in and bought up all of the magazines in question. So as we discuss with uh, Joel next week, hopefully things get back to normal with uh, classic rock and Metal Hammer and Prague. But uh, time will tell. That'd be good. Because, yeah, definitely that's one of those magazines like... You know, over here in the States, having like a magazine like Cream, which had great journalism, mm. people knew their stuff, slightly irreverent. Oh, yes. And, and all the great, you know, all the ads and things, too, like good promotional vehicles. Like, I was so happy I see Classic Rock, and it's got all that in it. So to me, it's like, oh, man, it's just another one of these great, you know, vehicles that's out there that's like this temporary. Yeah, so, but, uh, it, it wasn't the case of the problem with the magazines. It's a problem with Team Rock. Team Rock itself was... Um, very badly set up and wasted a hell of a lot of money on very daft projects <laughs> and has suffered as a result. Uh, uh, but the actual strength of the magazines is unquestioned. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, now, I know that uh, I'm a Facebook friend with Scott Rowley and he was putting videos <laughs> up and they were actually raising money and I think they were nearly up to 100,000. Uh, yeah. Did you look um, 100,000 pounds? It's nearly 85,000 now. Wow. Which has been raised. But um, it's a project Ben Ward, Orange Goblins uh, singer, started it literally the day after the announcement was made, looking to raise £20,000. And it's got way beyond that now. And I think he's aiming to try and get it to 100000 uh by the end of this week. It'd be amazing if he can do that. Yeah, and that's just to help the employees that were laid off, yeah. really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because unfortunately, they found out four days before um, they were due to be paid for December. The company's gone into liquidation. Not only have you got no jobs, but you're not getting paid for December. Goodbye. Wow. So it's a nice Christmas present for them all. Wow. So left <laughs> high and dry, shall we say. Yeah, that's not very nice before Christmas, but, you know, no. that's the way business people work sometimes. Yeah, and I can't blame the administrators. That's what they're there for. That's what they do. It's not them. Uh, yeah. I, I think that the, t- the, the hierarchy at Team Rock, and I'm not talking about Scott Ray, I'm talking about people at the very top of the board level, should have been a lot more honest and actually warned the staff this might happen. Uh, and said they did nothing, and no one from the hierarchy was there just hiding. Yeah. yeah. Very sad. Yeah, well, hopefully things will look up there, Mark. Yes. Fingers crossed they do in 2017. And as I said earlier, I think it's more likely than not there'll be an announcement in the next few days. I'd be amazed if there isn't, because the deadline for offers was last Wednesday. So I think once we've got the bankology today out of the way, and people are back at work as of tomorrow, I think there'll be fast movement. But we'll see. Fantastic. Fantastic. So, of course, we're here to talk to you about uh, Kerrang! magazine. So, before we get into Kerrang!, were you, were you someone that was working for Sounds first and then went to Kerrang?, No. I wrote for Record Mirror, which is a sister publication of, of uh, Sounds, but I never actually wrote for Sounds itself. So my involvement with Kerrang! was more from the outside rather than going over to Kerrang! from Sounds. Yeah, so, and were you in from the, the get-go, or did you... No, um, I actually joined Kerrang! in October 82, and Kerrang! was launched in, what, June 81, as they became a proper regular magazine-only late towards the end of 1981 because it always it started as a one-off which was so successful they did another one-off then another one 
and then decided to turn it into a monthly, then into a, a fortnightly. But my involvement with Kerrang! started in October 82. Yeah, and were you a, a bona fide metalhead, or were you... Oh, yeah. You were? Absolutely. Uh, I've always loved rock and metal. Um, before, I mean, I, I wrote about rock and metal at Record Mirror, but I was also working on another magazine which came out about the same time as Kerrang! started, called Metal Mania, which was a poster-style metal magazine monthly. And I was working on that before going to Kerrang! Yeah. So, yeah, I've always been genuinely bona fide metalhead, absolutely. Yeah, now tell me about the, the metal scene in England around 81, 82, because I was, I was born in 71, so I was like 12 right. or 13, and I seem to remember, I seem to remember, like, the music scene in general at that time was like Depeche Mode, Kim Wilde, mm. all that kind of stuff. And when it came to metal, um, it was kind of shunned upon, really. It was a, a very niche, even with Top of the Pops, they never really played any of it. Well, we have the usual nonsense. The mainstream always ignores metal, always has done and probably always will do. But of course, that was the year of the new wave of British heavy metal. So it's an incredibly exciting time for metal in the UK, not just because you had bands such as Iron Maiden and Death Leopard and Saxon, etc., breaking through, but you also had bands of the quality of Judas Priest, ACDC, Black Sabbath, all coming up with tremendous albums, Aussie as well. So it was a really vibrant scene and a very exciting time. Yeah, so who, who asked you to work with Kerrang? Was it Jeff Barton? No, no, this is before Jeff was actually properly on Kerrang. Although Jeff started Kerrang, because it was seen as part of Sounds, uh, Jeff was very much involved with Sounds. And when it was finally set up as an independent magazine, Jeff stayed with Sounds. So he wasn't involved with Kerrang until about 1980, early 84, I think, properly. Um, what happened was that I knew Dante Benuto uh, because we'd both worked on Record Mirror, writing about rock and metal at the beginning of the 80s, as late 70s, early 80s. And Dante was effectively running Kerrang, even though he didn't have that title and didn't have much uh, editorial experience. They let him run it, which is a great move, actually. So when the, the magazine Metal Mania, which I just mentioned, folded, or the company that ran it folded, I contacted Dante and asked if he was interested in any reviews. And he said yes. And I did a couple of album reviews for Kerrang! And it went from there. So it was Dante, not Jeff. Yeah, so, so what, do you remember what your first live review was? Or, uh, first live review in Kerrang! Uh, I remember the first live review I ever did, and that was for Iron Maiden at the Marquee for Record Mirror. That was 1979. The first live review for Kerrang! I honestly don't remember which one it was. Yeah. I know uh, among the first albums I reviewed was Twister's Sister Under the Blade. And also... Uh, the Cockney Rejects when they went over to a much more metal-oriented direction. But in terms of the first live review, I honestly can't remember which one it would have been now. There were so many. Yeah. They came so thick and fast. Yeah, do you remember the, the, the bands over there being excited that there was finally a metal magazine, or did they think yeah. it would be short-lived? No, I, I think people were excited. Well, it was a really strange period because the people, the publishing company who owned Kerrang! regarded us as a bit of a joke. We made a little bit of money, but they let us get on with it. They pretty much let us run it the way that we wanted to, with no interference whatsoever. And used to have bands coming into the office all the time, and I think they were excited because they had an opportunity to be in a magazine aimed at exactly the fans they were trying to get through to, rather than being in Sounds, which was a much more diverse magazine, Metal being part of it, or The Enemy, or Melody Maker, neither of whom really had much interest in Metal. So Kerrang! 
really established itself as being the only proper outlet for rock and young rock and metal bands in the same way that as far as radio was concerned in those days, there was the Friday rock show on Radio 1, and that was it, once a week for two hours. Yeah. So bands were very excited, yes. Yeah, did you think it was going to be a short-term thing for you, or did you think it was a long-term thing? Who knew at the time? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't think any of us knew. We just enjoyed doing it. We had great fun putting these shoes together. We had great fun listening to all the new music and enjoying ourselves. We never really thought of it as being something that would be long-lasting. But while it was there, we just really enjoyed it. Yeah, do, do you remember one issue or one interview or one feature that, like, people sat up and took notice and went, hang on a second, maybe this magazine is going to actually go somewhere now? Um, one that always stands out in my mind is when we did Accept on the cover at the end of 1982, when the, we had, we'd heard a copy of Restless and Wild. There wasn't even a UK deal for Accept. And Dante had the idea, we should put them on the cover. So... In the days before, before Kerrang! was so well established that record companies were falling over themselves to offer us long trips abroad to do major features on bands, we actually had to set up a trip to get a journalist and a photographer over to Germany by a convoluted route to actually cover except so we could do them on the cover. And I think that was a moment you know, we actually thought, hang on, we can actually do things that no one else can. And that made a lot of people sit up and take notice because suddenly here was an English magazine putting a German band hardly anyone knew much about on the cover. And I think that really made a few people sit up and take notice of the fact that we were prepared to take risks, we were prepared to support young bands, and we were prepared to put ourselves on the line because sounds wouldn't put an unknown band on the cover at the time, really, unless it was quite trendy. But we were doing something very different. Yeah. So yeah, that did make a few people sit up and take notice. Yeah, I'm just trying to think, and probably Scott can add to this. Was there any other heavy metal magazine anywhere at the time that was like a mainstream magazine? Well, even in the uh, states, in America, you had Cream and Hip Parade, didn't you? Yeah, um, Hip Parade was kind of uh, I don't know a little bit more like pop than metal, but Cream definitely yeah. was more of a harder magazine. Yeah, yeah. Although it wasn't really what you'd call a specialist rock and metal magazine, it was a little bit more across the board. Mm-hmm. But it certainly covered it. Metal Hammer came in Germany not long after Kerrang established itself, and it was really the Kerrang blueprint they used. But certainly in Europe, I think Kerrang was in the league of one for a while. We yeah. really had no opposition, so we just got on with it. <laughs> Yeah. Now, when did you start going from the live review stuff to the interview stuff? Did you push for that or did they just ask everyone to do everything? Early on. Yeah, I mean, I, I came up with suggestions. I think the first proper interview I did with Kerrang! was Hawkwind, in, again in 82. But yeah, early on, things just tended to move forward. I suddenly found that from being a freelancer, going into the office once every couple of weeks, I was there pretty much every day. And suddenly I was part of the team. Yeah, it almost, what you'd call a team it wasn't that sort of well structured at the time it was just everyone mucked in and did everything that would needed to be done it was only really from 84 onwards and we had a proper structure in the office but at the time it was everyone just mucked in came up with ideas and whoever was available would go and do things yeah now there must have been a plan there because something like that a magazine like that doesn't blow up by accident you know what well, I mean it's, it, somebody yeah, must I mean, have had a plan <laughs> I think the plan was to, as long as, well, as far as the publishing company were concerned, as long as Kerrang! would go on making money, they were happy to see it come out. (laughs) It was only suddenly, 
we our plan really was to cover rock and metal in the best way we possibly could in terms of not just the established artists but also uh, the up and coming artists that was our plan so we would do things like um we put bon jovi on the cover before their second album came out when they weren't that well known for instance but we'd also get interviews i think the first ever robert plant post led zeppelin interview was in kerrang wow uh before when pictures 11 was recorded steve gett who was a journalist at kerrang at the time uh, did an interview plant. It was the first interview he did uh, post-Septim. So we got that sort of thing. Because the other interesting thing was, I think that rock and metal bands felt that they were talking to people who understood them, who were actually in the same wavelength as them, rather than cynical journalists who were regarding rock and metal as a bit of a joke and no one could take it seriously. So that helped as well. Yeah, I think what you'd find with a lot of bands, and even today, is... When they do mainstream media, the people who are interviewing them have no idea what who the bands are and what their albums are and everything. They ask the yep. same questions. What was this guy like to work with? How was this and all that? And you still get that to even today, Malcolm. Oh, God, absolutely. No, no, nothing in that respect, sadly, has changed. But I, I think the great thing about Kerrang! in those days, in the 80s, was that we were, we, we were once called a professional fanzine, which I think was the best compliment we ever had. Yeah. Because no. it was true. <laughs> Yeah. Now, can you tell me about uh, when when you started? Was there when you felt that the magazine was actually going somewhere with yourself? Like, you know, when when was the first big junket that the record company sent you on? Can you remember that? Uh, well, probably the first big junket was going to America in '83 to cover '38 special uh, in North Carolina. And then as a result, this was at the end of 1983, and as a result of that, also doing two or three interviews in New York, but. We never thought of ourselves as big time or anything like that. We, ne- we just enjoyed what we did. We, I don't think any of us really felt at the time that this was really important. You know, we were important. We were just having a great time doing what we did to the best of our ability. But yeah, that first proper American junket was the end of 83. Yeah, and th- I'm sure you probably covered all the big bands over there, interviewed them, the likes of Maiden and Metallica and all these bands. I'm sure you mm. probably covered them over the years in Kerrang! as well. Oh, yeah, we did. Uh, again, Kerrang! was right there at the start with Metallica, uh, covering Metallica before anyone really knew who they were, when they were just a demo band. Uh, Maiden, obviously, had been at the scene and were very big by the time Kerrang! arrived. Although there again, of course, the, the Jeff Barton connection with Maiden helped a lot because he'd been covering them for a few years uh, before anyone really knew who they were. That was in the sounds days. Uh, but, yeah, Metallica, we certainly covered. And Guns N' Roses, again, we did before anybody else. And again, with both Metallica and Guns N' Roses taking the chance of putting them both on the cover when they were really not major acts. This was what we could do back then, but we thought, oh, we like Guns N' Roses, should we give them the cover? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Let's put them on the cover. The other one you put on the cover is, um, and one of my favourite bands, you, did, you put King's X on the cover before anyone knew who they were. Yeah, although by the time King's X had made the Koran cover, um, I'd left. Uh, okay. So that was after my time on Kerrang. But yes, Kerrang did. Absolutely. Yeah. Were you there when they put Prince on the cover? Yep. That was and a, I will that defend was, that. That was controversial. <laughs> it was. It was wrongly done. It was the right decision, but not done in the way it should be. What we should have really done is actually something, why the hell have we got this bloke on the cover and actually done a proper feature maybe not an interview because i don't know whether prince would have been up for an interview at the time but again lost the biggest name in the world 
and with Purple Rain, but we should certainly have covered it in a better way than we did, but it was a good idea. The problem with that uh, issue was it was very lightweight because we had U2 in that issue. I think the Moody Blues were in that issue. It was seen as just being too much divorced from metal, and we actually, a few issues later, did a much heavier issue with the likes of Raven in there. But I would always defend the idea of putting Prince on the cover, even though it wasn't done as well as it should have been. Yeah, well, if it's a magazine done by fans of music, um, you can't cover the same bands every single week. No, not, not at all. And we didn't. Uh, we actually were very diverse in what we covered and how we covered it. And we actually did put a lot of bands in there and made people sit up and take notice. And Simple Minds made it into Kerrang! And people were like, what the hell are you two doing in Kerrang! But this is it. How do you define rock and metal? It was almost defined by what we felt should be in there yeah. rather than what we felt fitted into a, a small niche. Yeah, one of the things I used to find when, when I bought the magazine was certain writers used to cover certain genres. Like Derek Oliver mm. was always the melodic guy. So if, a melo- yes. if an album came out, I'd always look for his review because nine <laughs> times out of ten, he'd, he'd be spot on with his review and I'd end up liking the album. Like, what, mm. what bands or, or genre of metal did they put you in? It was a well, one. No, I, I tended to be a little bit across the board. I love thrash and the extreme metal scene, but then I loved AOR as well. Um, so I tended to flit between the likes of Rat and Slayer, for instance. So I could cover both of them, which I, I think I'm very lucky to be been able to do. Nice. You did have journalists like Xavier Russell, who covered very much the more extreme thrash end. As you said, Derek was much more the melodic guy. In fact, Derek had his Wimpwire column in Kerrang! for a long while, in which he literally covered uh, the melodic scene in a column. Uh, but I was lucky enough to be a little bit more diverse than that. Yeah. So who did View from the Bar, that, that section in it? That was a combination of people. Okay. Uh, Mick Wall at one point did it, but it tended to be all of us jumping in with ideas. But I, I think Mick was the guy who coordinated it, but it was a combination of us all. Yeah, I used to find that very funny. Oh, we tried to do that yeah, in, you a, put in the, a very humorous you, you, way. You definitely put the boot in some of the bands. I, rem- I, remember, oh, yeah. I remember one one time over the space of five or six weeks that Steve Harris was out at all these bars and he had the same Halloween Keeper the Seven Keys t-shirt on and he put the boot in saying, you know, does he ever change his shirt? And that went on for uh, weeks yeah, and weeks. Again, that was just after I left. Okay. <laughs> so I can't take any responsibility for that <laughs> one. But yeah, we, we tried to be humorous without being nasty. Yeah, I think, I think most of the time we succeeded. Yeah, I think you struck the right balance. I don't think you ever really put the boot in. Um, but if, no. the, if the band made a mistake, you weren't afraid on calling them out about it. No, no, not, not at all. Uh, and I think that's what fans and readers appreciated, the fact that we did have a, an ability to prick the pomposity of some bands, but to do it humorously without st- sounding nasty and to do it in a way that was more of a wink than a kick. Yeah. And hopefully that's what came across with you from the bar. Yeah, did any bands ever pick you up on um, a bad review you did or did, did, would even read the magazine? And did, yeah, oh, yeah. You... I mean, it, it, typical bands, of course, they always pick up on the, a negative review and moan about it, even though the negative review can be objective. Bands always moan about that sort of thing and still do. It's always this sort of, uh, they're not picking up on the quality of the writing or the objectivity. They don't like being criticised. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it happened a few times. 
but we just ride with those punches and shrug your shoulders and say, if you're putting yourself in the public domain like that, you're going to get that sort of backlash occasionally. You have to deal with it. Yeah. When did you feel, Malcolm, that um, the magazine became powerful in that you, you're, the magazine itself carried a lot of weight with people? Never did. You never did? Never did. We, ne- we never knew. Yeah. Oh, to us, we, we never, it was only years and years later that suddenly people were saying, oh, I grew up reading Kerrang, when people ended up in big bands. And you say, wow, did you? Never do that. To us, it, we, we never thought of ourselves as powerful. We never, ever did. Um, we were excited about being able to cover the bands, and obviously we tried to do the best possible job we could and get the most access we could and look to try and get exclusives, but we never thought of ourselves as powerful, ever. Yeah. So, Never wanted to be. Yeah, I've, I've often wondered that because you, you look at some of the writers that you had at the time and like they're, even today when you talk to me, rock and metal people, you mentioned Mick Wall, yourself, all these guys. Like I, I remember all these names from, from the 80s and I'm thinking, I always wanted to ask one of you guys that when you were working in the magazine, were, they, were the record labels afraid nearly of what you were going to put in it in case no. there was anything negative or was there any of a backlash from them or anything like that? Um, there were one or two backlashes and actually sort of sometimes quite deserved as well. <laughs> I do remember one particular occasion when a journalist called Dave Dixon was sent out to the state to do the Bon Jovi feature, uh, the cover feature, and over, I don't know how many words he wrote on Bon Jovi, but let's say it's 4,000 words. I think of those 4,000 words, he spent less than 1,000 writing about Bon Jovi and the rest about his trip to New York, using the excuse, well, I spent a couple of hours of Bon Jovi out of three days in New York, so I think percentage-wise, I gave them more space than they deserved. <laughs> and that infuriated the record label, as you can imagine. They hadn't sent him out there to do a travel log. They'd sent him out there to do something about their band. Uh, that was a, a cause of massive ruck. It certainly did. Uh, but for the most part, no, I don't think record labels were afraid at all. I think they wanted to, they, they saw it as a marketing thing. And let's be honest, spending 1500 2000 pounds sending a journalist, a photographer to America to get six pages in Kerrang! was, from the marketing point of view, value for money. Yeah. They got a lot more space than they would have done with ads. <laughs> yeah, no, of course, one of the, one of the stories I remember reading when I was a kid, um, it involved Mick Wall with Poison getting locked in the cupboard with Ross <laughs> Halfin. And yeah. um, did you ever have any bad experience like that when uh, for a, a live gig or an interview? <coughs> no, I can't say I did. Uh, no, nothing of that nature whatsoever. You had the occasional run-in, but nothing significant or serious. There's certainly nothing of that level. So sadly, I missed out on being locked in a cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> Very sad. Yeah, did, did you find that over time you, you became good friends with the musicians or was there always uh, a bit of a standoffish attitude towards you guys? I think it's more friendly with musicians than friends with. Yeah. There are one or two I'd say are friends, but most of the time it's friendly. And you got on with people uh, really well. And it was always nice to see these people every so often. But I think there always has to be a certain slight um, gap between the musicians and the writers. Otherwise, the writers can't really be expected to be balanced. But yeah, you go on with certain bands better than others, absolutely. And you like certain people better than others. But for the most part, I think it was uh, friendly and respectful and professional.
Did you have the choice of over time of where which where you were going to go or like did they say do you want to go here or do you want to stay in England do you want to go to Germany do you want to go to Rock and Rio yeah. did you have that yeah, you choice did at have all that. you did have that to some extent when Ross Halford and I became extremely good at sorting out our own trips we were very good at basically saying oh getting two or three or four record labels to pay for different things so we could go to America and cover various bands and we became really good at that. So we'd almost set up our own trips. And again, Ross Halford and Mick Wall were very good at that. And Ray Palmer and uh, Xavier Russell were pretty good at that. So you'd, you'd become adept at doing it. And it was great fun to be able to go away to states. So what, there were times, literally, when you go to America for three or four days, fly back and fly out two days later, <laughs> back to America. Yeah. It became ridiculous. Did you find that bands were asking for you? Um, I don't know. That's a good question. I really don't know. Um, I think to some extent it was almost taken for granted that you would cover certain bands and other journalists would cover other bands. But asking particularly, probably not. I think they had enough trust in the various people at Kerrang to know that they would get an objective and fair approach from most people. Yeah. Uh, Dave Dixon being another example with King, infamous King Diamond uh, feature when he did a hatchet job on King Diamond which King Diamond to this day still insists he made up quotes. <laughs> but who knows what the truth of that is. Yeah. So you were there then when the magazine went from, from every second week to every week. Yes. Um, that must have put an extra workload on all you guys. Uh, not just the workload, but also we objected because we felt the quality would nosedive. Uh, that was when the powers that be realized the amount of money we were making for that company was enormous. We were the biggest money spinner they had. And that's when they decided, oh, what can we do to actually make more money? So you got the spin-off magazines, Extra Kerrang, Mega Metal Kerrang, Christmas Quiz Kerrang, mm. the Kerrang Yearbook. And then they decided, let's go weekly. And we didn't like that. We objected. We had no choice because that had been decided. But we never liked it. We always felt it was going to compromise the quality, which we felt was paramount. Yeah, yeah. Of course, another thing that's just come to mind there now, Malcolm, is when you're talking about all these stories. Uh, we met Doro Pesh a few months ago, and I remember he put a poster in the magazine of Doro Pesh topless, and I believe well, that didn't go over topless. well. <coughs> no, it wasn't topless, but it, was a, it wasn't a, a, a poster, it was a photo of her yeah. where you could actually see one of her breasts exposed on stage. It yeah. wasn't topless, <laughs> but yeah, that... 
did not go down very well. <laughs> but that was Jeff Parsons' decision. I'm going to blame him. To for that one. But yeah. yeah, it was harmless. Blame the photographer. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, a photographer who saw, uh, who took it and sent it in, and thought, oh, you might be interested in this. Oh, okay. But um, yeah, that was mm, maybe a little bit near the knuckle, but it was totally harmless. It wasn't exactly a major issue. Now, now we, were you someone, Malcolm, that you like to go to, I don't know whether you went to Rock and Rio, were you someone that liked to... Were you someone that liked to go away for a week or 10 days, or did you rather stay in the UK and do your reviews from there? At, at the time, I loved going away. I never went to Rock and Rio, but it was great fun going around Europe and America, which I did a hell of a lot. So, yeah, great fun. And going to places like Den the Green Festival in California were excellent. And the Texas Jam with Boston and Aerosmith, those are tremendous fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, um, don't regret that one bit. Yeah, and before we let you go, I have to ask um, the best people you've interviewed for Kerrang! and, and the worst. Oh, bloody hell, there's so many great ones. There were so many fantastic ones. It was a real pleasure to talk to. Yeah. Uh, Maiden were always great. Okay. Uh, lovely to talk to. Uh, Metallica, inevitably, were <laughs> great fun. It's just so many. The worst, I, it's difficult. I don't think it was... A, you got people that are a little bit monosyllabic. I remember the first time I interviewed Cheap Trick for Kerrang. Rick Nielsen was very monosyllabic, shall we say. But that's just Rick, and you have to get, a, get beyond that. So I'd say I didn't really have a bad experience interviewing anybody for Kerrang. And there were too many good ones to pick one or two out. There was, and Ronnie Deere was always a pleasure as well. Yeah, yeah. I have to say that Ronnie was always superb. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's uh so you know when you look back at at all the stuff you've done and you know the fact of how well known you 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 are in the metal journalist community and all that. How do you sit back and feel about the fact that if if there's the one thing they always point out about Malcolm Dome, it's the fact that you're the guy that came up with the term thrash metal. <laughs> I know. I don't remember doing it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't, honestly don't remember doing it, but uh, people tell me I did. So it's nice. <laughs> I can't say I invented the music because obviously that was down to the bands, but. It's it's a compliment, and I, I take it as such. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's like it's it's good because otherwise it would have been very confusing to call someone like Hammerfall power metal and Metallica power metal. So it's good to have <laughs> yeah. a distinction. Yeah, you're absolutely right there. Uh, although Metallica will probably deny they were ever thrash, <laughs> but then without them, thrash would never have existed. But that's mm -hmm. another long argument. In so, but yeah, but that's a compliment and it's something I'm proud of. Yeah, so Malcolm, was there one band that you championed for Kerrang that you thought would be big and they never blew up? <laughs> too many of them. <laughs> too many of them. Yeah, uh, there, there were just a lot of bands that I loved that uh, I thought were going to be big and never quite made it. Uh, I suppose you could say Merciful Fakes. I thought they were going to be huge and never really did it.
they, they became a cult band, but never really made it to the level that I thought they were going to make it to. But yeah, I loaded them. <laughs> but then that's the beauty of being a fan is that you can actually love something. And if it doesn't make it, oh, well, okay, you got it wrong. Fiona yeah. was another one. I was convinced she was going to be enormously successful oh, and she Fiona, didn't quite make Fiona it. Fiona Flanagan? Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, she never really quite made it to the level of success I thought she deserved. And, and it's one of those things. But there, there again, it's it's par for the course if you have an opinion and you have an opportunity to put your opinion into the public domain then more often than not you are going to be wrong yeah so so malcolm what made you leave kerrang oh, well i think it was when kerrang went weekly and we all felt that somehow it wasn't the same as it it once was and dante was offered to because dante and jeff never really got on and that's another long story of itself but Jeff ended up coming in as editor Kerrang and Dante was his deputy Dante felt that he should have been editor and there was friction there and eventually when Kerrang went weekly we all felt that it wasn't quite the same as it was and Dante was offered the opportunity to edit Metal Hammer in the UK and he asked me if I'd go with him and I thought yeah it is time for a break so that was the end of 1987 when Several of us left Karanga and went. It was almost like a, a schism. There was a split in the camp with several of us leaving Karang to go over to Metal Hammer, and some people, like, like Mick Wall and Crusher, staying behind, which is fair enough. So, yeah, that's basically in a nutshell what happened. And obviously, out of Metal Hammer came Raw. Yeah, I used to and buy that. They, I used to buy Raw. Yeah, well, that, that, yeah, again, that was started with the idea of being a Karang for slightly older readers at the end of the 80s, early 90s. Yeah, uh, but that happened after we joined Metal Hammer, and we felt things weren't right in the Metal Hammer setup back then in the UK, as compared to what happened later. Yeah, now when but you, that pretty much is it. Yeah, when you left Kerrang in '87, mm. did you still read it, or did you just? Oh yeah, we still saw it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, it was a rival, so we we always looked at it to see what they were doing and tried to do better what we did. Uh, but yeah, still read it absolutely. Yeah. I still have nothing but enormous respect for people like Jeff, who obviously stayed but stayed there for 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 the duration. Yeah, so we yeah, we were very much in touch with him and knew what was going on there as well. Yeah, I'd, well, when I was growing up, that was a bible for me. I remember buying buying my first Kerrang and I just got into metal, and ninety nine point nine percent of the bands I'd never heard of. So I figured, <laughs> so I figured I'll have to look into some of these, and then I, I did, and then that put me onto someone else and someone else, and. And my wife has a lot, you know, my wife's probably, gone, she'd probably say to me now, who are you talking to, Malcolm Dome? I blame him for a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take the credit, okay. <laughs> People blame me for a lot. <laughs> uh, but, no, I'm, I'm proud of being part of that era. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, it's great that people still remember that era with fondness. Yeah. What can you say? <laughs> well, that era is like, the, the era of magazines is, you know, gone more or less now and, and it's not what it was and it yeah. never can be again and i, I think that um that's you know the 80s and the golden era as far as i'm concerned for kerrang uh was a special time and i'd like to think that kerrang played its role in helping to bring to everyone's attention how special that era was yeah I, I think you definitely did anyway, Malcolm. I can, you know from my point of view definitely a, a lot of bands i wouldn't have got into if it wasn't for you guys covering them it's very nice for people to say that. And I think the bands feel the same way too, to be I honest. Mean, I, I assume maybe the one thing, one of the abiding memories that got to Kerrang was the day that Cliff Burton died. 
and that hit us all really hard. It was quite a shock because we were all new cliff. And um, being in the office that day was uh, quite remarkable because it really brought home to us how close we were to the scene. And spending the afternoon in the pub with Scott from Anthrax, who was over at the time, that was a, that was a, a remarkable day. I wouldn't call it special, but that makes it sound too positive, but it was a remarkable day, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It's, people are human in the end, Malcolm, you know. They are, absolutely. And long may that continue. Yeah. So, anyway, it's been great talking to you. Oh, lovely talking to you, and a happy new year to both of you. And happy new year to you, Malcolm, and hopefully Team Rock, good news on the way soon. I think there will be good news about the magazines. I'm very, very confident there will be. Fingers crossed all around. Excellent, excellent. Okay. All right. Thanks ever so much. All right, Malcolm, take care. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. Uh, Our first episode of our Kerrang! project. And, uh, I mean, who better to get on than than Malcolm Dome? Uh, I was very psyched when uh, he sent me the text that you got him on because that just... uh just kind of blew my freaking mind. Yeah, well, <laughs> he starts reading, reading, I mean, he reeled off all the names like, oh yeah, Dio, Metallica, oh, the Iron Maiden guys are nice. And I'm thinking, can you imagine interviewing them in the 80s? These, they were massive. Like, yeah. they're massive now, but yeah. amongst metalheads when you're in your teens, like, these guys were gods. Right. Um, you know, Maiden were Judas Priest and Maiden and all these bands were headlining and Donington and all that. And there's Malcolm going in, spending a few days with him and yeah. talking to him. And I always, I, there was always a little bit of jealousy, all right, from my part. I mean, you know, I think, wow, I'd just love to sit down for 10 or 15 minutes and talk to uh, Steve Harris or Bruce Dickinson or something like that. But, yeah. you know, these guys were fans doing it. And not only were they able to do it, they were able to write about it up in a, in a funny way and yeah. um, a relevant way. And, you know, and, I, I want to thank all the guys who wrote that magazine mm-hmm. because, you know, I wouldn't be into metal if it wasn't yeah. for that. Yeah, and it is cool, too, that, you know, after all this time, the fact that someone like Malcolm, who's seen so much and talked to so many people and been involved so much and everything, he is still as rabid about it as he ever was. Yeah, he's still a fan. You know what I mean? You see him in interviews on documentaries, and he's always fired up. He's always excited. He's just... And it's like, it's never diminished. It's amazing. You think you think after years of uh, writing for magazines and, you know, doing books and all that, you get burnt out on the scene itself. Yeah. And I don't know how a lot of them were able to do it, but they still love the music. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's... Like, we love the music as well, but then when you hear some of the political shenanigans, like, <laughs> we hear a little bit of what goes on in the background. Yeah. It, how You know, it kind of tarnishes your... your love of it yeah, in, or, yeah. or of certain bands in a way but you can imagine the stuff he would have heard yeah and uh he's still a fan Absolutely. which is great to see yeah, yeah it's amazing all right so that uh like i said we're back and uh that wraps up uh focus on metal for this week and uh so for myself and richie have yourselves a good metal week and until we talk to you again next time remember focus on metal everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.